0: Welcome to the Arrest All Mimics podcast with your host, Ben Tallon. Hello and welcome to Arrest All Mimics. I am Ben Tallon, your host. This is the Illustration Limited podcast for original thinking and creative innovation. Welcome back. Um, What did you think of Danny Allison? I hope uh, hope the show was good. We've had some really, really cool feedback from you guys so far. Uh, It's... Again, like most things that I do, this is completely new, so I'm looking for any input, any suggestions, any thoughts on future guests, thoughts on past guests, questions for the show. We can take a few questions if that's what you want this to be. Uh, We want to hear from the audience and see what we can do with this thing today's guest is absolutely fascinating uh, i've been able to lucky enough to track down rebecca johansson who is the professor of theater at new york university which th- when i think about the idea of that actually makes me laugh um i if my 15 year old self sitting down at school to do GCSER could have that scenario put in front of him i would have you know thrown things at my own head and taken the piss and it's just i think when you progress through the arts you start to get an appreciation of why everything's relevant and how you can apply that to your own discipline so i was lucky enough to be introduced to rebecca through eden orofanos who is a friend of mine from where my studio is and eden is from texas originally worked in hollywood worked on humanitarian projects in africa she's had this fascinating journey and lifestyle that's taken her through all, all you know all these cool places and she introduced me to her friends and, and said, you know, you guys should meet. I don't, I don't know why, but I just get the feeling you guys should meet. And within five minutes, uh, Rebecca's telling me these ridiculous stories, uh, for uh, for example, about the first female playwright ever, I believe, who is believed to have been a spy for Charles II and then made up her husband to be conveniently widowed. Because in the society she lived in, that would have allowed her more creative freedom in, in, in society. And wow, do you know, it's just like, you don't come across these people all the time. So I, I said, look, have you got any time tomorrow morning? Please let me come around, take some time. We'll have a chat, I'm doing this podcast. And I think uh, I think my guests would love to hear from you. So we've got that coming up. Among other things, we're going to be, you know, it's, it's like, okay, so how does this relate back to design and illustration and, and the core thing of what we do at Illustration Limited? But... I think as I've gone through the years as a, as an illustrator and and then got on to become a, a sort of part-time art director, uh, an author, uh, suddenly you realise that everything's completely relevant. And one of the key things that underpins any good theatre is storytelling, and that's no different in film, and that's no different in any art form, I guess, where the real crux of the success is to make th- the audience emotionally invest in in whatever it is you're doing. It, it doesn't matter whether you're a fine artist whether it's something you're doing that people are going to love or hate, it doesn't matter whether you're doing something that's, you know, a real naive frowned upon art form. I think if you're connecting with a certain audience and your stuff's working and, and getting out there, then it's the storytelling that under underpins that. Recently I've been watching great shows like True Detective. Uh, I think we're going through a really, really cool era for television at the moment and there seems to be a lot of uh, big budget shows now coming on channels like Sky Atlantic, on the BBC, we've got Sherlock and... There comes a point when you when you're in the arts and if you're interested in that side of things that you stop sort of watching on a superficial level and that's a a good and a bad thing danny allison on the last episode talked about how he's now looking out for how things are lit how things are produced uh you know from a photographer's viewpoint and and an illustrator's viewpoint i think it works for everyone so we're going to be discussing that with rebecca and what makes the difference between you know a good production and a bad production but i encourage my audience to sort of think about how you apply that in scenarios mm-hmm. like like we're all in where we have no budget and we have to go out there and market ourselves to this huge global audience now up against such fierce competition and, and i think there's so much you can take away from that and there's little uh, little tweaks and little little details that you can start to bring into your work once you get an understanding of why people invest in your work and develop it even more and push it down that you know down that road so unashamedly that it, it you know people people sort of thirst for more of it so we're going to be talking about all that we're going to be talking about the age of spectacle uh going from shakespearean sets where there, where there actually were no sets but, and you know back in a time when the language and the storytelling had to do the job solely on its own that's such that's why shakespeare's work was so powerful and then we're going to be going to the other extreme and looking at the 19th century American theatre, like the, the the pinnacle of spectacle, as Rebecca will be telling us. Uh, in one instance, where there was a live audience watching elephants sent down a slide and into a flooded auditorium where they would swim around for the viewing pleasure. How ridiculous! Yeah, it's but all these things, are, you know, you, you can take things away. So can't wait to get stuck into that. Um, just a couple of things coming up. Going to be at the V&A this Friday talking about just that theme, uh, marketing yourself on zero budget and that's an arts, arts thread event in London it's on from 7pm so check that out online, uh, the details will be on there, it's a free event so come down and, and say hello uh, and then in Cardiff on the 22nd of October talking about Champagne and Wax Crayons, my debut book uh, just a couple of cheap plugs that have got to be done uh, and let's get to it with Re- Rebecca Johansson cool, okay, So I'm here with Rebecca Johansson, um, who's actually in London from New York at the moment, so I've been fortunate enough to, to um, badger her into give me an hour of her time um, for this chat, um, and I think you'll do a better job of introducing yourself and, and what you do uh, than I would. So. Okay.
1: Well, I'm a, a professor of theatre, um, specialising in theatre history and dramatic literature at New York University, um, NYU. It's one of the... Uh, top programs in theater in the United States, and we train, um, specialize in, in giving an intensive actor training program to the students. But my my role at the university is to teach an area that we call theater studies. And um, in most institutions, uh, in the United States anyway, theater departments only require their students to take one or two classes in theater history and dramatic literature, and NYU is uh, very... Uh, diligent about making sure that their students know their history, so they require them to take seven courses in theater history. So uh, in order to give them the seven courses in theater theater studies, theater history, dramatic literature, uh, we have to teach a wide variety every semester. Um, So I specialize mostly, usually, in uh, renaissance and restoration theater, uh, predominantly British theater, but I also cover a little bit of Spanish and Italian as well. Uh, but I'm experimenting in the fall with a new course on U.S. theater history. And uh, my background is, is my dissertation in my Ph.D. Was, was just looking at themes that strung across different moments of theater history, rather than focusing on a specific historical period. So whenever NYU has a need for a course that they don't really have a teacher for, they turn to me and say, well, do you think you might be able to teach that? <laughs> uh, and... Um, so I usually like to say yes because it's fun and challenging and interesting. So uh, I taught this course on on U.S. theater history once before about five years ago at a different institution, and uh, so I'm looking forward to getting back into it.
0: Yes. Yeah. So what so what led you to that? I mean, what, what's your own background? And, I mean, is it something you're interested in from being young, or is I mean, were you just a creative person?
1: Yeah. I well, I got into theater when I was young. I I was actually when I was about six or seven years old, I was so shy, I couldn't stand up in front of a room full of people and say my name without wanting to faint. So my mother uh, decided to cure me of that by pushing me into acting classes. And I fell in love with the theater, with everything about it. And it still took maybe about 15 more years for the shyness to completely go away, but when I got on stage and became somebody else, it it allowed me a freedom to express myself in a way that I had never done before. Mm. Uh, But then I... Tried to go to L.A. and be an actor and go to actor training school when I was 18 and discovered that the industry is not what I thought it was, <laughs> to, to put it politely. Uh, and I, I ran back home and tried to re- rethink things. And I ended up getting my, my undergraduate degree in anthropology with an emphasis in archaeology because I fell in love with history. So when I realized how easy it is to get a job as an archaeologist... <laughs> I decided to go back to the theater and merge those two loves Mm. and and, uh, look at history and look at uh, theatrical practice. But I'm really, uh, because I'm a practitioner too, I'm a producer, I'm a director, I'm I'm an actor, I always focus on getting my students to make the connection between um, understanding theater history through the lens of how that impacts the way that we create art today. Mm. And that makes, I think, history come alive for them in a way that, that it hasn't for other theater history classes. I know I've taken theater history classes where I've literally fallen asleep mm. in front of the professor because they were so boring. <laughs> so I try and make it come alive. I try and um, show them as many productions as I can. I try and talk about, um, I talk a lot about the theatrical practice of the age. We talk a lot about the themes that are still relevant today to what we're doing. Uh, and we we try to actively engage in conversations about how would you do this today? How would you make this Production relevant yeah. to an audience
0: today? I think it's interesting. You do, just from personal experience, you do have to put, put it in someone's world and make it interesting to someone for them to actually connect and want to learn that. And it is that desire that is the key driver. I mean, in my situation, I went to college and at that time I was just completely obsessed with football, professional wrestling, and blow the bands. And, uh, <laughs> and it was, I stayed very much within that circle. Yeah. So, what my tutor did, rather than trying to push me away from that, he would. He very cleverly guided me in a way that would open the door. So mm-hmm. he pointed me towards some old wrestling posters that Peter Blake had done right, in the sixties, mm-hmm. knowing cleverly that I would then go and discover pop art and all these things, which I did. And because I found it through that that accident mm-hmm. of my own, there we go. And I think mm-hmm. I think that's a real teaching skill in my in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I think that's you know to, to engage with someone's personality and not dissuade them from what they are doing, but actually how can you activate that person right now? You know it's, it's yeah.
1: Yeah, we did. Uh, in my restoration class, there's a there's a play. It's it's um, the restoration period in, in British theater history is is not one that's often performed. It's not one that's often studied uh, because it's a, a period that's very spe- seemingly very specific to its historical moment. But there are definitely plays that still resonate and there's one called The Rover that was written by the, the first female playwright to ever make a living as a playwright wow. and she had a really fascinating life. She was probably a spy for Charles II. It was, she was really intriguing. She made up, a, a well we think that she actually made up her, her husband in order to uh, very conveniently become a widow very quickly. So, uh, so she got a lot more freedom in society. She's a fascinating character, yeah. and she actually has a couple of scenes in the play um, where uh, one of the women is is uh, subjected to an attempted rape. There's actually two scenes where this poor character almost gets raped by the men in, in the play. But it's actually quite funny, in the, but it's also horrifying that it's funny. And I came across a video of a of a company here in London that had decided to. Uh, to perform that rape scene in the middle of Camden Town, wow! In modern clothes, okay, <laughs> and to see to see the reaction of the the people around them, and uh, so when I showed my students that, I also had to give them a little bit of an understanding of of what Camden Town is like, because <laughs> yeah. you say that and they have absolutely no no concept, yeah. so I had to liken it to some neighborhoods in New York that they were more familiar with, but. Uh, but it was really fascinating that when when you drop this this moment right into the middle of, of the public that are just walking by, uh, how very quickly it becomes relevant. Mm. And how really interesting. They were really trying to experiment to see if anybody would actually step in.
0: Did they? No. Really? Yeah. <laughs> no. Wow. Yeah. yeah. At
1: least not in the parts of the video that they shared. I think they would have showed, though, if, if somebody had... Yeah stepped in. It might have been something about the language being a little bit more elevated that made them aware that it was a performance. Yeah. Uh, but you did see crowds like gathering around. I think I would have at least had to double check. Yeah. <laughs> yeah you know. I couldn't have looked myself
0: in the mirror if I would not at least yeah. found out that it's yeah. been staged.
1: Yeah. And you know, I've actually thought about staging something similar on the subways mm. in New York. There's a, a play from the 60s called Dutchman that takes place. Uh, in the
0: subway yeah. in New York, and I thought about maybe directing a production that does mm. something like that. Yeah. So, so one of the, th- I mean, one of the things I, I find fascinating, and this is a, quite a new thing for me, but I'm really starting to take quite quite deep notice of um, the theatre for one, for sure, and also television. Um, but just all the key storytelling that underpins any good production in that mm-hmm. sense, and I'm starting to now see how that. Underpins in, uh, again, in my opinion, all art forms. It doesn't matter whether it's design, um, illustration, painting. Uh, if you're telling a story and you're putting your work out there, someone has to be able to emotionally invest in that to mm-hmm. really, I think, for that to be successful. Mm-hmm. Would you Would you agree that's the case? And, oh, I, mean, okay. I mean, I mean, theatre probably more than most things. I would say when you're that close to a stage, it's, it would be very easy for that to fall flat and not to be that engaging. But Oh yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely, and that's and that's for me. That's one of the things that I mean. I do have a, a a wonderful appreciation for film. I have I have seen films that have changed the way that I've thought about the world. That have have inspired me. That have horrified me or informed me about um, uh, different things. But I fell in love with the theater because of the the very human connection that you have to the person who's on that stage. And um, so I've had some of the the best. Uh, emotional journeys of my life in terms of watching a story in the theater. But I've also had some of the worst because if it's really bad in the theater, it's really, really bad. Uh, so you have to make sure that that connection is, is present between actor and audience. And um, it's one of the things that makes the theater so incredibly powerful is that the person who is experiencing this, this story or you're experiencing this story with somebody who you can reach out and touch probably shouldn't but you can (laughs) uh and and but i've had audiences just get so emotionally invested in in work that that i that i've participated in that um they felt compelled to um to express it in really fascinating ways either through tears or um i was in one production where um, I had to deliver a very emotional speech and, and we built up this relationship between these two characters over a long period of, of the whole play. And uh, I had this wonderful, perfect, dramatic pause before I, I said, the, delivered the final line. And um, apparently somebody in the audience was so caught up in the moment, he decided to say it for me. Wow. <laughs> and it was, it, was, it was difficult to navigate what to do in that situation as an actor, but I thought also it was such a beautiful expression of, of the work that was happening on stage that he, he, he was just, it was very clear that he was so caught up in the, the moment of this um, uh, expression between these two people that he felt compelled to say, because he thought that I should say those words. Mm. Uh, he had no idea that that actually was the next line. But, um, but he, it was, it was one of those moments. And, and that's why I love the theater so much is because it can bring people to that Mm. can bring them to, to experience those, those emotions that I think, and I think also that the audience together share a collective sense of, of connection in a way that you don't when you go into a movie theater. Mm-hmm. When you go into a movie theater and watch a, watch a film, everyone's very much invested in their popcorn and their sodas and their <laughs> and their, <laughs> their their date that they're there with mm-hmm. or, or whatever's going on in their own world. And even now in, in movie theaters, we have the chairs are getting bigger and bigger and bigger to separate us even more from one yeah. another so we can't see each other. But oftentimes in the theater, you're sitting in a very uncomfortable chair very close to the person that you don't know, <laughs> uh, right next to you or right in front of you. And, and there's something different that happens, I think as an audience, when mm. you are in the same thing, if you're watching dance or if you're here listening to music, that it's, it's a different experience that you share as an audience, um, because that person that's in front of you is live and you can, you can, they're, they're, they're corporeal. You can reach out and you can touch them. And, mm. um, I once went to a production of, absolutely brilliant production of King Lear with Nigel Hawthorne just before he passed away and um I I I liked to tell people I had such good seats that he spat on me at one point (laughs) and I loved it (laughs) Mm. but it was uh it's it's that ability to to just especially if you go and see something with an actor that you're familiar with Mm. that you've only seen on a screen that there's a very different experience when they're live
0: right in front of you. Yeah, I suppose it's similar to when you see a, a band live or anything live, you know, mm-hmm. it's just that it's that human connection and um, and the fact that you are seeing it happening right now in that moment in front of your eyes, it could all go wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's the art, Is like the pressure that those guys are under is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, as, a, as a designer and an illustrator, I'm very fascinated by the whole production design side mm-hmm. of things and mm-hmm. the set design and, and the part that that plays. And I've yet to work mm-hmm. in theatre, something I'd very much like to do. Um, and I always wondered th- about the relationship between um, the actors, the writers, the, mm-hmm. the you know the production designers and the, the people who do the lighting, the people who score these mm-hmm. things I mean Can you tell me about that you, Yeah, know?
1: yeah, absolutely I, um, A lot of times those things are done in, in a bubble where uh, the lighting designer does their thing this, uh, oftentimes the design teams will work together. Mm. But there's very little, usually very little involvement with the actors in that process. The director usually oversees everything. Uh, but I was when I was in university uh, in my uh, getting my master's degree, uh, I saw that the the department oftentimes sacrificed um, the production quality in favor of teaching the mm. mostly the designers. And uh, I worked on a production once where the, the director was a student director, and he absolutely hated the design that was being created for his production. But because the, the institution was wanting to support the designers and, and, and tell them, no, no, you, you, it's your design, you can do whatever you want, that uh, he ended up being, all of us ended up being very unhappy with the experience. Um, I, was, I was acting in it, and the, the costume designer had no concept of even just the practical physical movement that my character had to engage in, so I, I was struggling against the costuming most of the time, and um, and let alone it, it also was no reflection whatsoever of the character that I had been developing. It was it was very um, uh, I, it was something I had to work against as an actor, and I had to push through even harder than I would have if if that designer had been in collaboration with me in the rehearsal room. So when I left the university, when I graduated, I developed a theater company that I named Stone Soup Uh, after the children's book where uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but there's a a trio of soldiers are coming home from war and they're starving and they're walking through a village and they know that um, they're going to ask them for food. Mm. So they start closing up all their doors and pretending like they're not home and saying, no, we don't want anything. So they decide to start making in the middle of town stone soup and so they get a pot of water and they put some stones in there and they light the fire and 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 slowly people became curious with what they were doing and and suddenly somebody came in and said oh you know i have some carrots that we can toss in and somebody said oh, i have some potatoes that we can and eventually the whole community came together and everybody contributed to to a wonderful meal that they all shared in And so that was the concept behind the theater company was that we would all work together as an ensemble that everyone would contribute and everyone would engage in conversation. So we had some wonderful um, experiences where, you know, designers were welcome to come into the rehearsal room and see how actors were moving. I had a a fantastic costume designer that worked for us who who would bring in bits and pieces of things for the actors to, to take to rehearse with and she would look at what they were gravitating toward for their characters to represent them, um, the set designers would come to to see the movement and and engage in really fascinating discussions and um, I think one of my favourite design meetings, we were working on a production that took place inside of a mental institution and the set designer uh, wanted to design an entirely white set which um, in, in the regular art world might be fantastic, but in the theater world, that is an absolute nightmare because the lighting designer, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's going to absorb every single color. So you have to be very careful about how you light a white set so that you're not blinding your audience and your actors um, and that you're not, uh, it's not getting oversaturated with the color. Mm. Um, but they worked, at, they worked very closely together with, and with the costume designer um, there were moments when the, the characters were in their own little world in a mental institution. They created their own uh, fantasy world. And then there were moments when reality came, came crashing in, when they had to own up to, to the reality of their world. Mm. And so the lighting designer wanted to do two different, very different looks for each of those moments. And then they, she worked with the, the set designer to make sure that the set wasn't going to work against that. And the cost- she and the costume designer worked together with different fabrics to see how would mm-hmm. each lighting design reflect the color in the costume so that um, when the, the warm tones of the, the fantasy world made um, the character that was most invested in that fantasy world come to life with her skin tone and, yeah. and the colors would really pop. Uh, but then when the world of reality came in, the other character who really wanted to get back to reality um, came more alive with the costuming, the way that the light reflected off of it. So that was one of my favorite productions that I worked on in terms of design yeah, aesthetics. That's incredible, it was, that
0: unity and, and that base it's essential for such you know minimal concepts like that, for that mm-hmm. to, to you know, say that could have fallen so badly wrong, but yeah. you know that's... That's really impressive stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, and minimal concept is correct because we had no money for it too. So, yeah. <laughs> so we had we had to, we had to do a lot with very
1: little money, and yeah. and that's something that the company became known for was was doing very minimal work, but making that work really mm-hmm. profound and, and, and impactful. We oftentimes didn't have much money for sets, so we did most of our uh, we created most of our, our storytelling in design elements through light. Mm. And I had an absolutely brilliant lighting designer that I worked with and collaborated with for 10 years on that so after a while you just get to learn to speak each other's language and yeah. and, and they can almost read your mind and, <laughs> and it's fantastic because um, you know it's, it's it's really important to build those kinds of artistic relationships especially when you're working in that in that way um, yeah. if a designer's not used to uh, being required to collaborate with other artists in that way then it could be a little un- uncomfortable but we've had so many amazing experiences with um i had a, a sound designer once who was also our choreographer and uh, i had that was a production i was directing and i had the actors um as an exercise just choose a piece of music that they thought evoked their character and she was able to incorporate the song choices into the actual sound design that she choreographed them to in the production and and it just elevated the level for everybody it it made allowed the actors to connect to, yeah. to something on say se- on set um that they might not otherwise so it might have just had to be something that was unconscious or that they were that they had to tap into without the audience knowing and hear the way she designed it they were able to actually hear it mm. when they were on stage and allow it to inspire them their movement
0: so. wow so do you do you teach i mean because we told talk, we talked briefly about um the mm-hmm. module you were about to teach with the mm-hmm. uh, with the, the historical um, sets. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, this is this is going to be really an, an interesting class because the it's, it's U.S. theatre history, but it's based on... Um, I'm teaching it from the perspective of, of a, a book that my, my mentor in my PhD program wrote called Agitated States. And so it's looking at U.S. theatrical history as a means of understanding the American character. Like... What is the collective American character and how does that relate to its experience of theatricality? And so the fundamental question he asks in the book that I'm going to ask on on day one of the class is uh, how did ultimately and it's pretty challenging question. How did ultimately the attacks on September 11th, how did that become how was that created to be a performance of spectacle that was specifically for an American audience? And yes, it impacted the world, but it was a performance specifically for an American audience. So we're going to talk about the notion of spectacle in American theater. And I mean, Americans were founded by, mostly, America was founded by uh, the Puritans that were fleeing England. And the Puritans hated the theater. And, but at the same time, they were very theatrical in the way that they performed their sense of self to their collective community. And so the book actually ties in and takes you on a, on a thread to find out how that led us to this notion of, of needing something to be completely over the top in order to really believe in its, in its authenticity. So American theater history is rife with these amazing spectacles, of, particularly of scenic design, like spectacular performances that led eventually into now the, the elaborate spectacle of American musical theater on Broadway, uh, also led into like P.T. Barnum and and circus performances and. Um and I, I think I mentioned to you before that one of my favorite examples of this was a, a larger-than-life uh, performance of spectacle. I, I guess you would call it a circus. I don't know. Really, it was more like a, a variety show back in the 19th century, where they, able, they were able to flood an entire arena, and they sent a team of elephants down a slide into land <laughs> into the water and go swimming in front of the public. And they would fill, they, they would do things like that all the time with like exotic wow. animals. And it was the bigger the spectacle, the more uh, impact, and, and every year it just became uh, more and more important to inspire uh, uh, new heights in, in scenic design that would allow those kinds of things, special effects. Yeah. And in the theater, um, we went into an age of melodrama in the 19th century, where it was, uh, it was was it was to some degree about the storytelling, but the storytelling felt like it was enhanced by these big stage spectacles. So uh, one of the plays we're covering in the class is the play Uncle Tom's Cabin. that's based on Harriet Beecher Stowe's uh, novel. And um, the original first couple of productions of it were not very successful. Um, they, they cut out a lot of the storylines that, that that were there originally and they shortened them to really smaller pieces but they also didn't really have a big sensation to them. And then on the third production they elaborated it into a four-act play and they included these gigantic stage spectacles uh, like people drowning in a river that they created on stage you know things like that and that was the production that hit where it really hit home with the audiences and the there was a reviewer i think in the new york times that said that it was the the greatest expression of of abolitionism that had ever been seen on the stage and there had already been two productions of it, but they didn't include this huge stage spectacle. So it was—it was almost like that—that that gigantic uh, display of of what you what American ingenuity can create on stage um, is what gave it that extra push to make it a notable form of storytelling. Yeah. Oh, so it's then then We go from that to the 19th century, on into the 20th century with big budget musicals, and yeah. and then that eventually leads to um, big explosions in action movies and um, that are now ma- making hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. in the box office every weekend <laughs> so that's America's contribution to the world uh, uh, storytelling is big explosions yeah. and helicopters crashing on stage and just um, larger than life spectacle and for some reason the class is exploring this notion that that American audiences won't really don't gravitate towards simple storytelling Mm. Uh, which I think is, is true and it's not true I, I, and I have a hard time with the whole concept of, of a collective American culture it definitely does exist but, um, but America is a vast place um, mm. with a lot of different people with a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different experiences so I think um, oftentimes we get lumped into, into this notion of a collective consciousness but we, we do tend to produce Art that reflects that, yeah, in a lot of ways, especially our performance art.
0: It is. It, I mean, it's, it's still to me feels like another another planet in some senses. You know, I've been growing up in a, in a rural Yorkshire in, mm-hmm. in England. You know, I only went to America for the first time last year, but there's a an ethereal ethereal feel to you know to just I don't know you know the country. It's it's strange to me it always until you go there. It does. It feels like. Mm-hmm different to anywhere else in the world you know mm-hmm. Europe you know Australia really all these people you, you see them you can always envision being there and going there but I, th- I think it's because I was raised with movies and big budget things that it just it seems to be this you know larger than life place and and you know so when I first started to get commissioned for American clients in design and that you know it felt more overwhelming than a lot of the commissions but then it's not the case you know you start working and it's not different the process is the same really to, yeah. you know um, it's still but um. So okay, so you you said you were um, you teach British theatre, right? Mm-hmm, well, yes. Okay, yeah. So I mean, there must. I mean, okay. So talking about now, and, and what are there are there big major differences between? Um, I mean, that's a broad question, but, uh, but, but uh,
1: major differences between U.S. and British, or between old British and new British? No, in
0: terms of right, you know, in terms of now, I mean, I mean, yeah. I'm interested. You know, I mean, our audience on this show is, is going to be primarily sort of. Artists, designers. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, we want to appeal to a lot of people, musicians, and and you know, am yeah. interviewing guys like yourself. But yeah, yeah I'm, I mean, I'm just interested in in in, in sort say contemporary British theatre and, and U.S. theatre. I mean, yeah. what are the fundamental differences in terms of visually and, and storytelling? Oh
1: yes, absolutely. And, and it was really funny. I had um, I'm 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 Acquaintances with um, with the actor Brian Cox, who's uh, a legend of, of British yeah. theater, and we were having. He came into my my class in NYU uh, uh, last year and spoke to my students about performing for the Royal Shakespeare Company, predominantly. He was. We were talking about performing classics um, of Renaissance theater, Shakespeare, uh, Shakespeare's contemporaries, and we had a conversation afterwards where where we, he was talking about he thinks that um, modern American theater at least the plays that are written in America right now are in too linear, that, um, that the method of storytelling is incredibly direct and that there seems to be a lot more experimentation going on in British theatre and in, and in other European theatre uh, with non-traditional weight avenues of storytelling and non-linear storytelling. Uh, but he did turn to me and he said, but you Americans, you have perfected the musical." He said, and I apologize right now for all of England's attempts at doing the musical because you just can't do it the way that you Americans can. And I told him, it's a spectacle. We know we've mastered spectacle. Uh, But what I find fascinating right now is, um, even in America, this is becoming uh, a trend. Um, But I've been spending a lot of time, because I am a a Shakespeare scholar and Shakespeare's contemporaries, uh, every time I come to London, I go to the, the Globe, and I see productions there. And... Uh, I used to go to the the RSC, but their they, they, the, their work hasn't been as fascinating to me lately. Uh, because what the Globe is doing is they're getting back to, and what their their practice has always been has been to get back to explore, experimenting with doing theater the way that it was done in Shakespeare's age. And for them, uh, you know, that space is is absolutely phenomenal to be in. Uh, and when Shakespeare was writing his plays originally there really was no such thing as set design. Uh, you would have a few pieces of props, maybe some chairs and some things to, to play around with on stage, but everything that was um, geared toward giving the audience a picture of the location was done through words. And Because the, the stage space, uh, you know, eventually they got perspective scenery from the Italians, so when the Restoration uh, came in, I don't know how much you know about British theatre history, but uh, uh, after the... Um, uh, the, uh, beheading of, of, Charles, um, the Puritans were in charge and they, did not like theater. So they outlawed theater for 18 years. So there was no, no official theater in England for, from 1642 to 1660. And, uh, most of the people who had been supportive of the monarchy had gone to France or to Italy, um, and, and left the country. So when Charles II was restored to the throne after Cromwell died, um, the new theaters that were developed were very much after the French and the Italian models that now used scenery and perspective painting to create locations. But in Shakespeare's age, um, the, the scenery was set through words, through poetry, which mm. is why the, the the plays are are so poetic and particularly yeah. in describing places. To um, revo-
0: to completely replace that and evoke that only with words is so, that's that's mind blowing. Yeah, that's such a challenge, and yeah. I guess it speaks volumes for the quality. Yeah,
1: yeah. So it's it's really fascinating to go and see productions in a space that is very similar to what what would have been where they were originally performed. Um, and 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 to see the way that they're they're adopting that same kind of practice in terms of, of, of or, um, just having very minimal set. Uh, I went to Titus Andronicus last last season, and, and there there was no set. Um, almost everything was done through simple props mm. and words. And uh, I went to I went to see a, a play the there the other week, um, The Heresy of Love, where they did have some set, but it was it was very simple um and they they told their story through words yeah. through the expression
0: of that do you think something is lost uh, in, in kind of not of, of course not all but but a lot of modern theater in terms of reliance upon upon sets and, sets, and, and, yeah. and visual triggers as opposed to that the art of the storytelling
1: yeah um it's it's um i i think that it goes through phases i think we go through phases where um where we get particularly with, with theater that again, sells to large audiences. Um, we tend to think, well, it has to be bigger. It has to be, Mm. uh, more spectacular. Um, but I, but I, I also know a lot of playwrights that have been really working with, with getting back to the poetry of the language. And, um, and you really don't need very much to tell their stories, but there's that, that crisis between the two things I saw. Um, there's a production on Broadway, uh, Last year and the year before, it's been it just closed, called If Then. And it was a, a, a musical starring Adina Menzel and Anthony Rapp, so big followings of musical theater people everywhere, just adore them. And uh, so, of course, I had to go to Broadway, and I went and saw it, and, and I loved the story. I loved the music, I loved the performances, but I hated the production. And I hated it because they were trying to make it a Broadway production mm. and it was a story that could have been told so much more simply than yeah. it was and the direction yeah. was awful because it was trying to to make it big and yeah. make it spectacular and the storytelling did not need it at all. Yeah. The story just had to be
0: yeah. very I feel this and going back to this, this is why I'm watching more theatre and, and, and this kind of stuff and, and the core of it because... Uh, the um, you know, really I think I really think the essence of any good art is is not like you say, it's not over the top, it's not padding out. If the core and the and the backbone is there and it's right, um then I, I think the rest is is fantastic. That it you know, enhances that but that has to be there, otherwise you can you can you know it's, you can Throw as much art or-, or tune on a song as you want. You can, mm-hmm. uh, you can tell. You know, in my world, in illustration. You know, it's just less is more. It's mm-hmm. like if I, I need to. If someone's looking for a newspaper, it's essential that someone gets the message out of illustration immediately. Mm-hmm. And that and you can't write that out for a person. That has to be done in the real nucleus of something. Mm-hmm. And I really think um, mm-hmm. see it as a real leader for that. And 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 I think it, that you know that applies to all art forms. I really mm-hmm. do. I mm-hmm. think.
1: Uh, yeah, I work with a, a playwright right now. Um, I mentioned, you know, I t- It's so funny, I teach theater history and, and, and I love getting back to the roots of, of, of why we do the pieces that we do today and, and what's inspired it in the past. But I, when I work in the theater um, in, on the actual uh, performance side and directing side, I love what's being done right now by playwrights. Yeah. So I do very modern, very avant-garde, very experimental theater. And I work with a playwright right now called, uh, his name's Eric N., and, uh, he is, uh, he's got a small little cult-like following and we like to call him Buddha, uh, cause he's kind of like that. He's very Zen. He's very, uh, uh, he's very, uh, he's got those very mellow personality. He's got a, a cult-like following of theater people behind him, but he's, he's the head of playwriting at Brown University in, in the States. And, uh, he did, I, I helped to produce, um, an epic vision that he had for, for a piece of theater that, that was epic in, what we were attempting to do, but very minimal in, in how it was performed. And he wrote 17 plays uh, over the last 20 years, he'd been writing these plays, uh, all on the theme of genocide in the 20th century. And it was a, a, the whole piece collectively was called Solography. And we had 17 different productions going on all across the United States and around the world. And they all came to New York for uh, a marathon of performances over a week and a half. And the way that he approaches his storytelling is, uh, it's, it's, when you read one of his plays, your first thought is, I have absolutely no idea what that was. Like, I have no idea what that was about. I have no idea what, what I just read. But the more you, you you dive into it, the more you unpack, you really see... Beautiful storytelling happening but he breaks apart language and and he makes that part of one of the challenges um, as an artist performing his pieces is to figure out well these words are all out of order or these words are all inspired by something else and if I can figure out what it's inspired by then I can figure out how to tell the story so part of our process in in creating this this work was to uh, because everybody was scattered all around the world, we had uh, regular design uh, or regular, um, we had a design retreat, but we had regular artist retreats where people who were working on the different productions could come together and experiment with some of the work. We would always get a rehearsal space where we could move around and, and open up the text. and the designers were invited to all of these things and, and joined, joined in on the conversation. And we, because there are a lot of different characters that recur throughout the different plays, so the designers were talking about, okay, well, how do we all develop threads and through lines so that the audience is aware that this is the same character from that play mm. over here. So can we design elements that connect the two, even wow. though they'll see one of them on Monday and the other one on Thursday yeah. or something like that. So that we were trying to, to, to allow each production to be its individual self, but at the same time create a, a collective whole piece that everybody could could connect to and could connect the dots between the different plays. So that was absolutely my favorite part of that process was sitting in an empty rehearsal room with a bunch of different other artists and designers and directors and actors and we all just sat around a piece of text and said, what does that mean? And how do we tell this story? And the playwright was often in the room and we would look at him and he said, don't look at me, I don't know what it means. (laughs) It's your job. (laughs) That's your job to figure it out. Yeah.
0: I love that. That's why why I've really loved... um... The little work I've done in film just so far, and, and in and not theatre, but, mm-hmm. but I'd like to work in theatre because I just it's such a buzz to come together on set with all these people mm-hmm. from all these different backgrounds. But it's so important to put them together and to understand one another's roles. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, I I, th- I really think intelligent audiences can see when that's not gone on.
1: Oh yes, yeah. absolutely. And I think we you know we sense it like we, if you watch a film. You know, you can see, oh, those two actors had absolutely no chemistry; they had no connection Clearly, to each it other. It has to be organic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I think that's that's where I think performance art is. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I was always drawn to it: is the connections that you make with people. Mm. Um, I have, you know, people in my life now that are are some of my closest friends, and they're because I worked in the theater with them, and we formed a bond that, uh, and I work with them over and over and over again because we speak the same language. You know, mm. you'll see a lot of filmmakers out there. Use the same actors over and over and over again. Yeah, we were just you talking do. last night about Wes Anderson always has Bill Murray in his yeah. in his uh, in his films, and it's because they speak the same language. Absolutely. They, they can read can, each other's minds. Comes
0: lines. across so well. I, I bought the retrospective book of Wes Anderson recently. Mm-hmm. It's just so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, um, it, Yeah, it does. It really comes across in whatever whatever art form that is. Um, wow, <laughs> incredible. Um, so I'm gonna kind of push this towards the to finish, but. Um, the, the, there's one regular question I ask each person on the show at the end and I call it I should probably explain this on episode one that the reason I call this segment the shark in the tank is that as the host my favourite piece of art is Damien Hirst's um, uh, these, you know, the idea of physical impossibility of death in the mind of someone living the massive shark and mm. formaldehyde in the tank and it that creates so fun. much contra- yeah. controversy when he brought those works out but the concept of that work and it just it, it thrills me and it blows my mind and I think about that so that's why I've called this section So I always ask, I always say, what can you, not necessarily a favourite, because I know everyone's favourite thing of anything changes so often, Mm -hmm. but can you name it like a favourite creative work? It could be anything from an album to a film to a production to a set and the things we've talked about today anything at all that sort of jumps to mind right now that really drives you or thrills you in some way um,
1: yeah that that one's actually you know I have I have lots of different favourites of different things but um, but the, the piece that immediately jumps out in my mind as a theatre artist was um, I mentioned the production of Nigel Hawthorne that I saw him in, in King Lear at the RSC it was up in Stratford about 15 16 years ago and and um, it, it was actually my first, my first visit to England. I, um, I had to come to Stratford to do some research at the Shakespeare Library there for my, my master's thesis. And I just happened upon, I said, well, I wonder, I'm gonna go by and see what's, what's on today at, at, at the, the RSC. And it was uh, King Lear, starring Nigel Hawthorne, who at the time was one of my, my favorite actors. Um, and it was a production that was directed by the Japanese director Yukio Ninagawa. And, um, I, would actually seen some of the like images of some of the productions and I was absolutely fascinated by it. And, um, the production merged, uh, the very traditional British RSC performance style with, um, heavy influences from Japanese no theater. So the set design, uh, was, was set exactly, almost exactly like a no stage, which is, um, uh, it's very, 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 if you don't know what no theater is, it's uh theater. theater. Uh, it's the uh, incredibly long tradition of theatrical performance that goes back um, probably a thousand years in, wow. in Japan. And all of the production is, is incredibly stylized down to the movement. It's, um, it always takes place on a, a set that's made out of wood planks and there's always a, a symbolic pine tree in the back of the, the set. Um, at one point in my academic career, I knew what the pine tree was supposed to represent, but I don't remember now. Uh, and so it was—it was this really. And I consider the theater always a sacred space, uh, but it was connecting it to a specific kind of sacred space. Um, and the theater, in, in, no theater, is, is is sacred space. And the fool was played by a, a really incredibly acrobatic, talented Japanese performer who was performing in a bit more of a kabuki style. And all of the costume elements were Western, but with hints of of Japan. And there was something about the merging of those two very long theatrical traditions in this production that... um, And and Ninagawa's concept of movement was so striking. Uh, From the very opening moment of the play, I like to tell people that my jaw dropped... And it didn't come up for three and a half hours, and it was a three and a half hour long play, and I did not care. I wanted more of it at wow. the end of it. It was it was spectacular, and it was it was not just the performance because I, Nigel Hawthorne can could have done no wrong in my eyes. He's a brilliant performer, but it was it was the 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 way that the the set design, the costume design, the um, the whole production aesthetic influenced the way that story was told. And, and the merging of that with, um, with the very much more traditional RSC performers, I think, was, was something that maybe challenged them a little bit more than, than they had been challenged before, because they also had this now very deep connection to a, a, a different kind of theater style that they were trying to evoke at the same time that they were trying to perform Shakespeare. So it was, uh, it was absolutely stunning. <laughs> And that one immediately jumps out. I always say, tell people that was my favourite theatrical experience ever.
0: Yeah. yeah. Three and a half hours, wow, to yeah. still be wanting more. That's, yeah. That's, 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 you, know, <laughs> you know that's good.
1: <laughs> and then Nigel Hawthorne ended up passing away just a few months later, so it was it was one of the last things he ever did. Wow. And I was, felt very, very privileged to be able to
0: see, to <laughs> see that. Now yeah. That's, that's really amazing. Good. Well, thank you so much for your time. And yeah. that's been, uh, I'm going to struggle to top that. It's brilliant. <laughs> so much to go on how good was that i absolutely loved that conversation with rebecca and what a what a privilege to meet such a fascinating innovator and as students are pretty lucky by the sounds of things and it's going to be great to see uh, see the next wave of actors and directors and producers coming off the back of this uh, what a crazy world theater um, i cannot get enough of it um seriously recommend um a lot of the a lot of the productions that are going on in london at the moment there's a lot of uh, a lot of strong stuff out there Uh, But next week, I'm going out to New York to talk to some really exciting guests for Arrest All Mimics. Um, I put the feelers out there pretty quickly among my clients who like what they've heard so far. And we've got quite a few cool, willing guests. And again, as ever, crazy spectrum of people. All corners of the arts, uh, which is what we're about. And we want to hear your suggestions. Uh, So do hit us up on the Twitter, at Arrest All Mimics. Email us, mimics at gmail.com or get in touch through illustrationweb.com and the website. We're all over social media uh, and we're doing great things. We're really trying to champion not only our own talent but just the, just the arts in general. You know, at a, ti- at a time when, in some corners, the arts are under threat, You know, budget cuts and you know it's been suggested and uh, I'm certainly a believer that this government does not value the arts like they should and we're doing our best to try and balance that out and get the guests out there to you so you know we can all learn a few things from these amazing people uh super excited about going to new york next week um it's going to be really cool to get out there and record and chat to these people and and see how many people i can peg down to make this the best show going who knows we might get there <laughs> let us know your thoughts and it's going to be really cool pushing things forward thanks for tuning in as ever uh, hope you've enjoyed the show and look forward to being with you all soon